in our Advent reading this morning. Hebrews chapter 9. We've been in a series over the Sermon to the Hebrews, and this morning we will consider the reality behind the history, the reality of Christ's coming. And so I want to put a tag on this message, fixated on Christ, He came to clean your conscience. Would you say that with me? Fixated on Christ. He came to clean your conscience. Mm. Yeah, we heard in chapter 9, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Hmm. Conscience. I want to talk about conscience this morning. Hmm. Conscience. Conscience appears five times in the Sermon to the Hebrews. It appears in chapter 9 twice. That's verses 9 and 14. It appears twice in Hebrews chapter 10. That's verses 2 and 22. And then just before the conclusion of the letter, it appears in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 18. Five times. Conscience. What a gift from God. The conscience. That you have a conscience is God's gift to you and to me. It really is. In Hebrews... The word conscience has to do with one's internal awareness of sin. That's how we can define conscience in the Sermon to the Hebrews. It has to do with one's internal awareness of sin. Your your conscience is like an internal alarm that goes off when you fouled. Your conscience is like a referee in a sports game. The referee watches your behavior and upon seeing bad behavior, blows the whistle or throws the yellow flag and then assesses the penalty. That's right. Personal foul, number 61, Randall Boltinghouse. Unnecessary reply to his wife. Loss of quiet evening. (laughs) Andrew Nacelli wrote a book on the conscience. It's called Conscience, What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ. He says your conscience functions as a guide, a monitor, a witness, and a judge. Your conscience guides you to conform to moral standards. Your conscience monitors how well you conform to them. Your conscience testifies whether you conform to them. And then your conscience judges you on your conformity. And the result is either a good and clean conscience or a guilty and pained conscience. 
That's how your conscience functions. And, and let's just really be clear here uh, so that we understand. You're, you're, so like a referee in a game. Uh, so an NFL referee will never blow the whistle, turn on the microphone and say, hey, everyone, let's just take a moment to recognize that that was a clean tackle there on the field. And, and let's just all let's just all encourage, you know, the tackle and and you guys, uh, you know, go ahead and shake hands and, and let's just all celebrate good sportsmanship. Coaches would go, what are you doing? See, you, you're, referees will never do that, right? That's not how they function. Well, that's kind of the way your conscience is. That's the way your conscience is. Your conscience is a guide, a monitor, a witness, and a judge. That's it. Now, your conscience is reliable. Your conscience is reliable. But your conscience is not inerrant. Your conscience is not perfect. Your conscience can malfunction. Yes. Yeah, some people suffer from an underperforming conscience. An underperforming conscience. So uh, notions of guilt or shame have become anesthetized. Uh, Constant sin numbs the conscience. And the Bible calls this a seared conscience. And that's another sermon. That said, and I, I believe that this is relevant for our congregation. Others of us suffer from an overperforming conscience. That is, we have ongoing struggles with guilt and shame. Perhaps we've grown up in legalistic families. Perhaps we've attended legalistic churches. Perhaps we've suffered under legalistic pastors. And these areas make us feel like, you know, we're just failures or we're never going to be clean before God. We feel like we're untouchable. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about the story of a couple who had been sent home from missionary work in South America. We'll call them the Johnsons. Mrs. Johnson was caught in deep depression, gripped by constant suicidal thoughts. She was preoccupied with the feelings of failure and guilt and worthlessness and a firm belief that she was unlovable. Those feelings of guilt, those feelings of guilt, Uh, ruined their ministry and almost destroyed her family. Then there was a person we'll call Judy. She once confessed to her pastor that she had two abortions as a student in college. After she had come to Christ, she sought God numerous times for forgiveness, but she remained almost emotionally paralyzed due to her guilt. The guilt negatively affected her personal and spiritual life, and it created emotional distance between her and her spouse. And then there was someone we'll call John, a retired man who had been active in church 
all of his life. And one day during a conversation with his pastor, he confessed to an indiscretion that he had committed as a teenager over 60 years before. Over 60 years before. He knew in his head that he was forgiven, but despite what his brain was telling him, he was still not free from self-condemnation six decades later. So each of those stories are stories of an overperforming conscience. This nagging pain of uncleanness or shame, self-hate, self-condemnation. I wonder how many of us resonate with those stories. You know, we've said words, we've sent that text, we've made unwise decisions, we've committed offenses that have caused deep hurt to ourselves, to others. We can't take it back. We can't. And we've asked forgiveness, we've been granted forgiveness by the Lord, but we still struggle. We still struggle. And then we feel bad because we struggle. So it's compounded. And, and as a result, there's this, this distance that we feel between ourselves and others and between God and ourselves. So, so a guilty conscience creates inaccessibility. And we don't feel like we can access others. We don't feel like we can access the Lord. And then, you know, the holidays then compound things because, you know, they trigger longings to be with family and then yet regrets over what we would like to change but can't. Anybody here need a clean conscience today? Who can clean an unclean conscience? Well, Hebrews chapter 9 gets at the heart of why Jesus is better. He's better because he can clean a guilty conscience. He can purify our conscience so that we can serve the living God. Isn't that what we read in verse 14? He can purify our conscience. So Christmas is about what God did in Christ to purify our conscience. I got a big idea for you here. Christ came to clean the conscience so that we can serve God with a good conscience. There's, there it is. There it is. Say that with me. Christ came to clean the conscience so that we can serve God with a good conscience. That's the good news for today. But some were doubting that. The original recipients of this sermon to the Hebrews, they were doubting that. The original audience, they were growing hesitant about this secure gospel anchor. They were a minority in their culture. They were harassed and persecuted. Some faced prison, others loss of property. And they faced real temptations to return to their old life of law-keeping under the Old Testament tabernacle and temple systems. Because it was safer. It was more culturally acceptable. And it was visible. It was visible. The tabernacle and its later version, the temple, I mean, they were physical worship structures that you could see and smell and taste and touch. Let's, let's just pursue a clean conscience that way. Let's just we don't have to walk by faith. Let's just walk by sight. We can clean our conscience by sight. And Hebrews chapter 9, the preacher says, no, that path is not possible. And he explains why. Hebrews chapter 9 explains why 
why the, the path of tabernacle law-keeping is not possible. And then the preacher explains why only Christ is the path to a purified conscience. And so in verses 1 through 10, if you have your Bibles, meet me in Hebrews chapter 9. And we're just going to walk through chapter 9, and I want you to see why law-keeping, why tabernacle attending regulations is not a viable path to a purified conscience. And, and in verses 11 through 28, the preacher proclaims who Christ is and what he did and why he is the only path to a purified conscience, both then and now. The tabernacle explained, verses 1 through 10, the, the, the Christ proclaimed in verses 11 through 28. Let's get to work here. Let's, let's talk about the tabernacle for just a moment. So in verses 1 through 10, the Hebrew preacher calls the Old Testament tabernacle a, 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 a parable, a parable. Look at verse 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9 says, according to this arrangement, arrangement, according to this arrangement, that is literally the word parable, parable. So according to this arrangement, according to this parable, the tabernacle is called a parable. I just found that interesting. What's a parable? What's a parable? Well, remember in your Sunday school class, your Sunday school teacher growing up, you may have heard your teacher say that a parable is an earthly story with a what? A heavenly meaning. Yeah, you know, you know. Yeah, yeah, and that's not a bad definition. That's not a bad definition. Let me tighten that up a little bit. Uh, uh, here's another definition. Klein Snodgrass, Klein Snodgrass, in his book on parables, Stories with Intent, he defines parable as this. A parable is an imaginary garden with real toads in it. Okay? So in other words, it's an imaginary world that reflects reality. So a parable is a lens through which we look to see reality, to see what's really real. So in the Bible, parables are meant to awaken insight. Parables exist to help us see what we otherwise could not see. Parables are for, parables are for awakening insight and inciting action. So the, the goal is not just knowing something, but it's doing something with what we know or what we discover. And so a parable is meant to get us thinking. A parable is told to get us asking, what is there to be learned from this parable? So you say, Pastor, that the tabernacle is a parable. Well, what, what, what do you mean by that? Well, here's the parable. Once upon a time... There was a true story of a people who were freed from 400 years of slavery. After Israel left Egypt, God gave instructions to their leader Moses as to how he was to be worshipped. And those instructions included schematics. 
Those instructions included a pattern or a type of structure. And that worship structure in the wilderness, in the desert, it, it was called a tabernacle. A tabernacle. And so this worship structure called the tabernacle is a parable describing our situation with God. So the tabernacle is a parable that tells us who God is and tells us who we are. And the entire premise of the tabernacle model was inaccessibility. Inaccessibility. So I want to show you a few slides of what the tabernacle was like. Can, do we have those up here? So there's, uh, let's kill some of these lights here so we can see it a little bit better. There we go, thank you. So there's a, there's a, a few of the tabernacle slides there. Let's keep going. Next slide. That's about the size of, that's about the quarter size of a football field, okay, all right? So that, that, that was about the size of the tab, just so you get a frame of reference, all right, frame of reference. There's another picture. Notice, uh, notice that uh, the tabernacle is in the center, and then Israel, the tribes of Israel surround, okay, keep going. There's another picture, okay. And then uh, that, there's actually an, a, an actual model. Uh, if you go uh, to uh, Israel today, you can see an actual model of the tabernacle. And then uh, here is, uh, here, now here's an interesting picture. So, so, so the 12 tribes are surrounding the tabernacle, but there is a buffer, and the buffer are the Levites the Levitical priesthood. They served as a buffer. So Israel was to get close to God, but not too close, not too close. Now, in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, there is a description of kind of the, the, the temple or the tabernacle furniture. And so in uh, the entrance was the courtyard, and in the courtyard was a, a bronze altar. Let's just kind of go through that here quickly. Uh, there's the courtyard, and let's take the next slide. That's the, that's the, uh, that's the bronze basin. That's the bronze, that, that was where washing occurred. It was huge, bronze basin. Let's take the next slide. There's the bronze altar. That was also huge. That was where the actual sacrifices occurred there in the courtyard but then you could only go so far you had to go to what was the in the next part called the holy place on the right hand side only priests could enter what was called the holy place and there there was furniture there the altar of incense the table of bread or showbread or and, and then the seven branched lampstands that appeared as the priest entered that holy place and let's go to the next slide, and you'll see some of these pictures. That was, that was called the altar of incense. And then, uh, let's see the next slide. That's the, the, um, that's the lamp stand. And uh, then, so it was a dimly lit room. It was a dimly lit room. And then, and then you had the, the, the offering of bread before the Lord in the holy place. But only the, but we see that only the priest could go so far. Let's see the next slide. The next slide, you get up to this, this uh, curtain right about in the center, this other red uh, curtain that you see, the inner curtain or the veil. And, and, and so priests could not enter into that section called the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest, only the high, and the high priest could only enter 
on the day uh, on Yom Kippur, one day a year, the high priest could enter. So just one day out of the year, the high priest entered the most holy place to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. So, so it's, and, and the high priest could only enter on the life of another, that sacrifice. Planned inaccessibility. That's the, po- that's the point of the tabernacle. That's the parable of the tabernacle. The parable of the tabernacle is that the God of heaven and earth is holy. He's holy. He is set apart. He is dedicated. He's unrivaled. He's un- incomparable. He's not common. He's not common. And the fact is, you and I were made to live in the very inner room of that tabernacle. We were made to live in the inner room of the most holy place. In fact, our spiritual ancestors used to, used to. In Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve enjoyed unrestricted access with God in the tabernacle garden of Eden. But in Genesis chapter 3, both the man and the woman fell for Satan's lie. Satan's lie. You will be like God. You will be like God. And instead of trusting the word of the Holy One, our spiritual ancestors trusted the lie of the evil one. And they were therefore banished from the most holy place. And as a result of sin, inaccessibility happened. Gone is unrestricted accessibility. They were banished from the most holy place. And as a result, all humanity was plunged into a sinful, broken, fallen world. We're at odds with God. We're at odds with our planet. We're at odds with one another. One historian put it this way. The first universal democracy in the world was a democracy of sinners. United by their common confession of sins and expectation of judgment. You know, we often ask each other, is everything okay? Is everything okay? That's a, that's a good question. It's a good question. How many of us ever ask God that question? Maybe it's we know, maybe it's because we already know the answer. Everything's not okay. And we've offended God. And thus the tabernacle is a parable of what reality is when we choose to act like we're God. And someone might say, well, why doesn't God just get over it? Why why doesn't he just decree my sins forgiven? Why didn't he just wave his hands and say, I forgive you, let's go on from there. All right, well, let's go there for a minute. Let's say you're in a courtroom and you're the victim of a crime. And the evidence has overwhelmingly convicted the accused. They're guilty. But the judge, instead of sentencing the criminal, releases the criminal by decree. How then is justice served? And that's a human courtroom. What about the God of this universe? 
God can no more compromise his holiness than electricity can compromise its voltage. Electricity is no respecter of persons, and neither is God's holiness. So you see, the tabernacle is a parable teaching us that God takes his holiness seriously. And he also takes your life seriously. So, so, so he respects you enough to observe you. Hmm. Yeah. And what he observes is sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's only sinners in this room. And that sin has caused inaccessibility between ourselves and God. That's why verse 9 says, according to this parable, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot, cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Can't, 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 can't. And, and, and some of you may be saying, well, pastor, that's a nice Bible story, but, you know, how does that apply to my life here today? Here, here's how, here's how. People are still trying to build and enter tabernacles of their own choosing. I bet there are some teachers and nurses here who all year long have heard this sermon from their bosses. That there's no time for rest. There's no time for rest. It's called the tabernacle of exhaustion. I just bet that there are some of us who all year long have heard this sermon from their Instagram feed. Your value is in your looks. Your value is in your looks. It, it, it's a tabernacle of external appearances. And I just bet that there are lonely, discouraged hearts who all year long have heard this sermon from their culture you do not belong. You do not belong. And man, I'm telling you, when we try to enter those tabernacles by whatever acrobatics we can muster, one of two things happen. Either we fail and are crushed with guilt, or we succeed and become puffed up with pride. And friends, what I want to tell you is that if the tabernacle system could have cleansed the conscience, why did those priests need to keep offering those sacrifices? In fact, in fact, the point of the parable of the tabernacle is that it is a reminder, not a remitter of sin. So, so the tabernacle's main point is the impossibility of human effort to attain accessibility before a holy God. You're never going to be able to clean your own conscience by yourself. There, there's no such thing as a self-cleaning conscience. There's not. We need outside help. In fact, the more you try to clean yourself up before a holy God, the less you will understand how impossible it is. R.J. Grunewald uh, wrote an excellent book called The Art of Law and Gospel. The Art of Law and Gospel. This is what he said. This is what he said. He said, the Christian church loves to preach law. The Christian church loves to give us lists and steps and advice. And, you know, none of these things are necessarily bad in themselves, but they never actually deal with the heart of the problem. Then he says this. This was convicting to this pastor. He said, many of our churches have become content 
with creating well-behaved constituents instead of forgiving children of God. He says, you know, I'm not saying that behavior modification doesn't matter. If you're an addict, you need to modify your behavior if you want to live. If you're a bad husband, you need to modify your behavior if you want your marriage to thrive. If you're a spendthrift, you need to modify your behavior to avoid bankruptcy. Behavior is important. Behavior is a practical way of applying the law in everyday life. But what the sermon to the Hebrews is saying is that the law alone won't fix the real problem because the law does not ultimately exist to change our behavior. The law ultimately exists to lead us to Christ. The law exists to lead us to the truth that Jesus comes, Jesus came for lawbreakers, not law keepers. And so to be considered a law keeper, we have to keep the law 100%. And who has done that? So the goal of law is repentance. The goal of law is to drive us to the cross. So the law shatters the self-made delusions about the goodness we offer and leaves us broken and nowhere to turn to but the cross. And so the tabernacle was never meant to solve the problem of a guilty conscience. It was meant to point to the problem solver. And that gets us to Christ. So, so the tabernacle explained leads us to the Christ proclaimed. And in verses 12 through 28 of Hebrews 9, the preacher proclaims that only Christ can lead, uh, can clean the human conscience. And that's why I love this phrase. Here I love this phrase, verse 11. But when Christ appeared, that's Christmas. Christmas is when Christ appeared. Advent, appearing, arrival, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. That's why the Apostle John proclaimed in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Christ is our tabernacle. He appeared to transform the tabernacle by removing its inaccessibility. He is our tabernacle so that we might know the living God. He came to reform, to renovate, to reconstruct until the time of reformation. That's Christmas. He came to renovate the tabernacle so that in Him all that remains is the most holy place. So don't you see, sin complicates things. God's but very simple. One holy place, one most holy place. That's heaven. That's heaven. And in verses 12 through 28, the preacher proclaims that Christ appeared as the superior high priest who entered the superior location to offer the superior sacrifice for the superior benefit. Yeah. Christ appeared as the superior high priest meaning he appeared to earth. He came to earth from the heavenly realm. He came from on high, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. This is why he could say to the Pharisees, before Abraham was born, I am. Who says that? Who says that? Christ said that. 
He appeared as the superior high priest. He appeared to enter the superior location. That was verses 11 and 12. Through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. And it's like we didn't get that, so the preacher repeats it in verse 24. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So, 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 so this verse, Hebrews 9.24, helps us understand another verse, another miraculous event in Matthew 27.51. Matthew 27.51, when Christ died on the cross, Matthew's gospel says this, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Hallelujah. Top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. So from heaven to earth, Christ's death creates access. In Christ there is no barrier to God. In Christ there is no barrier to God. Do you believe that? Christ appeared as a superior high priest to enter the superior location to offer a superior sacrifice himself, verse 12, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Verse 14 says, he offered himself without blemish. He who was innocent of sin, he who possessed a perfectly clean conscience, he substituted himself for us. You say, that's not justice. It's beyond justice. It's grace. It's grace. And then all of this to achieve a superior benefit. Verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. The promised eternal inheritance. So, so, our inheritance, the benefit of an eternal inheritance, is both a now and not yet inheritance. It's now in that we have received the Holy Spirit. And now that Jesus Christ, who has ascended on high and who has sent his Holy Spirit to live in our lives, now we conduct ourselves in this world as many tabernacles. You see, see, that's why in the Old Covenant it was, it was come and see, come and see, come and see. But in the New Covenant, it's go and tell, go and tell. And, uh, and we're many tabernacles we, who have, whose clean conscience exists to serve the living God. You say, what does that look like, Pastor? I'm glad you asked. Let's see some more pictures. All right, so yesterday, um, some mini tabernacles showed up at Austin's place, which is a brand new women's shelter uh, in, in the ministry of CU at Home. And we, many, many tabernacles showed up to, to give Austin's place a, a deep clean and cover it with prayer so that that would house and meet needs with love. And my goodness, what a, what a wonderful, wonderful way. If you want to know, you know how to get into the rhythm of community life here at church, first Saturday service, first Saturday service, first Saturday of the month service, 
to come. And what a, what a glorious, glorious time that was as we just met needs with love and, and created a place, a warm place. And I want to show you, I think we've got a picture of the entire team there. And uh, just in, let's just enjoy some of these pictures. There we go. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Amen. 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 That, and that's now. See, that's part of our in, eternal inheritance now, now. And, and at the same time, it's a not yet. So we're in the now and the not yet. And here's what I mean by that. It's verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for them. One day, our king will arrive. One day, he will come. He will appear. And when he appears, it's, the new, it's, it's, it's new heavens and new earth time. And I can't wait to see Jesus. Amen. So this, this sermon was preached to the Hebrews because some in the congregation, they were weary, they were fatigued, and they were tempted to return to, to what wasn't working. To what wasn't working. And, and, and out of that, their, their minds, just start, their hearts started to drift. And, and the preacher says, look, 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 look. Here's what you have right now. Here's what you have right now. And what's true for them is true for us. Right now, right now in Christ, we have access. Right now in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. Right now in Christ, we have a global family of brothers and sisters from every tongue and tribe and nation. Right now, we have the living and active word of God. Right now we have redemption. Right now, we have peace with God. Right now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. You listen to what he says over your heart. Right now, we have the love of Christ. Right now, we have a clean conscience because we're in Christ who will keep us in him. Why would we ever leave that? The tabernacle was a parable. Jesus is no parable. He's the point. He's the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. He came to clean your conscience and mine. And when he did, when he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Amen? Listen, listen. Some, some, someone may be here today. You may have heard all of what I've said, and you may be thinking, you know what? Pastor, I'd like to believe that, but I just don't have the gift of faith. Well, today is your lucky day. Because you see, I have been authorized by the King of Kings as his ambassador to offer you, through the preaching of his holy word, the gift of faith. Because you see, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And here is the word of God, verse 26. Christ appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So there. This is how a pastor named Martin Luther put it. Being the unspotted lamb of God, Christ was personally innocent. But because he took the sins of the world, his sinlessness was defiled with the sinfulness of the world. 
Whatever sins I, you, all of us have committed or shall commit, they are Christ's sins as if he had committed them himself. Our sins have to be Christ's sins or we shall perish forever. Our merciful Father in heaven therefore sent his only Son into the world and said to his only Son, Jesus, you are now Peter the liar. You are now Paul the persecutor. You are now David the adulterer. You are Adam the disobedient. You are the thief on the cross. You, my son, must pay the world's iniquity. The law growls, all right. If your son is taking the sin of the world, I see no sins anywhere else but in him. He shall die on the cross. So the law kills Christ. But we go free. Now then, repent 